6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. That doesn't mean you have to pay taxes you're not eligible for, but you certainly do need to pay the taxes you are eligible for, and to fight those things is to fight the wrong battle. How tragic. Christians are responsible to obey the law. Because the laws are good? No. They may not be. But that's part of your conduct. Every ordinance of man. And so Peter exhorted his readers to abide by governmental laws, to submit to every ordinance of man. And uh, here it's literally the institution or creation of the law, and it's made by man. A human, the human, these are human laws. We're not talking about God's laws here. He's focusing on the ordinance of men. Keep off the grass, whatever. The, moti the motivation for obedience is not avoiding punishment. It's for the Lord's sake. It's not that you're going to be thrown in jail for that. It's that you're, you're giving a witness. That's, his, that's the point that Peter's trying to make here. To honor God who ordained human government. Christians are to observe man-made laws carefully as long as those laws do not conflict with the clear teaching of Scripture. Now, there is a gray area here. What happens when those laws are direct conflict with what the Bible teaches? Then you've got a problem. So there are places where rebellion is sanctified, even though it may lead to your death. But that's not, you see, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether it be the king is supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. This section of Peter's argument leads many to believe that, that the organized persecution through oppressive Roman laws either not yet begun or not reached the, the provinces of Asia Minor. He's in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey. We're not in that era yet under Nero where there's real oppression by the Roman government. The Romans give them their due brought order to a disorderly world. Before you're too harsh on their judgment, realize what a rough-and-tumble world it was that they tamed. And they established Pax Roma. They actually created an administration that allowed roads to be built, commerce to take place, and so forth. And they, in a sense, put a context in place so that the gospel could go throughout the world. Alexander came along and unified the language. For enforced Greek as the international language. Fantastic. One of the most precise languages on the planet Earth. Greek. The Koine Greek. The Romans then succeed and on that foundation built roads and communication and an infrastructure and a, and a commerce that caused it to be possible to travel throughout Asia. Paul could go to commercial centers and, and, and spread the gospel. The combination of the universal language and a universal political structure set the stage for the church, strangely enough. And so, uh, so the, yes, indeed, those laws became oppressive, as it always does under tyranny, and it did. 
But that's, this implies, this is an era or an instruction ahead of Nero and all of that uh, uh, that followed. Christians were then facing lies and verbal abuse, not torture and death. Christians were still enjoying the protection of a legal system which commend, uh, commended those who obeyed the law. The Romans give them their credit. All they wanted is have it quiet. That got them upset is when there were insurrections of whatever reason. And the way Paul's enemies would raise trouble is to go to the Roman authorities and try to accuse Paul of creating unrest that would raise the alarm among the, the Roman administrators. And uh, so that was, you understand that. So. So a believer's best defense against slanderous criticism was good behavior. Make those accusations false by behaving properly. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. It is the will of God. That's a strong term. See, apparently Christians were being accused of evil. But for Peter, it stressed that it is God's will you know, thelema, term expressing the result of one's purpose or desire. It's God's will. And he's going to use that phrase all through this letter, as we'll get, get into it later. Put to silence. Through excellent behavior, they'll muzzle, if you will, the talk of ignorant men. The ignorance of community. Each of the three Greek words that are rendered here in the ignorant talk of foolish men, that's the way it's translated. But each one of the, the three Greek words start with alpha. Uh, they're rendered never perish, spoil, or fade. It's the same, the same thing that happens back there in, in, in verse 4 of chapter 1. But this, this always amuses me because apparently Peter enjoyed alliteration. I'm always amused. Somehow seminary, past, pastors graduate from seminary, seem to get, develop an affection for alliteration. Um, where every they have four, you know, four, five key points, and each one starts with the first letter, you know, and and so on. And uh, 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 they use the, the intention is that makes it mnemonically easier to remember it, maybe. But it's a, it's a, it amuses me to see how some people are shackled to that particular motif, and so it's kind of interesting to see even Peter picks up on that with a deliberate alliteration here of the three Greek words, each starting with alpha. To, he gives it a, a punch, if you will. Moving on. As free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Submission to lawful authority does not negate Christian liberty. You have liberty in Christ, yes, but that still should allow you then to submit to lawful authority. But you shouldn't use your liberty in Christ as a cloak for maliciousness, he's saying. Civil law should be freely obeyed, not out of fear... But because of doing so, it's God's will. So you don't, you, you don't keep the law to avoid being punished. You keep the law to have a good, good witness. Christian freedom is always conditioned by Christian responsibility. Galatians 5 deals with that. All through chapter Galatians 5. And you never use your liberty of Christ as a cloak for, or a cover-up, a veil, if you will, for some maliciousness or something of your own contrivance. Christian liberty should be conditioned by its Christian responsibility. Because you are the servants of God. Now, it's interesting here that the word here, um, 
enjoy true freedom when they obey God and live as servants, slaves, if you will, the douloi of God. So even though you're living as free men, you should also live as God's slave. You, are, you may be free, a freeman in, in terms of our liberties that we enjoy here, but you're still a slave if you are God. You're purchased with a price. And it's interesting to me that Coeur d'Alene, where we live in French, means the heart of the all, all being like an ice pick or a, because uh, uh, the intent was to give the Indian, the, the French Canadian trappers gave them a backhanded compliment, right? Treat, calling them sharp traders. They had hearts of the all. Hearts of, but see, to, a, to someone biblically sensitive, that's the heart of the bond slave. The symbol of the bond slave was to pierce the ear to the doorpost when he bonded that house for the rest of his life, voluntarily, as a, as a commitment. And uh, so that's a doulos, usually what it means. And, and, and John and Paul both use that term of themselves. They're bond slaves of Christ. And I was intrigued with that because that's what Coeur d'Alene actually is conveys. But anyway, moving on. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now there's a mouthful. There's four punchy ones. This section concludes a four-point summary of the Christian uh, uh, citizenship. Four points. Honor all men. And uh, honor, value, esteem, respect, honor, and so forth. Pretty straightforward. Honor all men. Believers should be conscious of the fact that each human has been uniquely created in God's image. I've met several I've had some doubts about, but I'll yield the point. Okay. Love the brotherhood. Okay. Love the brotherhood of believers, their brothers and sisters in Christ, God's family members should love each other. That's pretty basic. Each one of these you could build a sermon on, but I don't think that's necessary here. Fear God. And the term here does not mean terror, but awe, reverence, the kind of reverence that leads to obedience. And uh, so it's the same words used all through the New Testament. And one will never respect people until he reverences God. One of the problems we have in our culture that it takes us maybe slow to pick up on, we're used to, we've lived many, many decades, two centuries actually, in a culture that was God-fearing in general. They may not have agreed on all points of doctrine, of course, but they at least respected God in some way. What we fail to realize is in recent decades that has been stripped away with value relativism. You have your truth, I have mine kind of business. That's a form of rejecting. That's no longer God-fearing. Our, our freedoms come from God, not from the state. And uh, so the, the rejection of that heritage, we shouldn't be surprised when we see that rejected. The widespread corruption we see in the highest corridors of power. Whether you're talking about Wall Street, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, the, 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 the musical chairs in that community, which eliminates any form of regulation. Or whether you look at the FDA, the American Medical Association and the pharmaceutical industry, how that, those musical chairs eliminate a real... As you begin to realize the corruption that occurs that's brought upon us this real estate collapse and also the credit collapse that's engulfing the world, is all has its roots in our failure to have effective regulation, which in turn is a, 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 caused by an erosion of a God-fearing culture. They, they don't fear anything. Every man does what is right in his own eyes, which in the Bible several, many times, is used as a symbol of the lowest depths you can, in the book of Judges, to get across how deeply it fell, every man did what was right in his own eyes. 
That was an indictment, not a boast. Honor the king. And this is the honor, same thing that's used in the beginning of the verse here. The respect or honor due is all, is, should be given to those that God has placed in authority, whether it's king or governors or what have you. Okay, straightforward. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Servants. Now, the Greek word here is not the doulos, the slaves, but rather it refers to a, a Greek term, okatai, which means a household or domestic servants. It's not quite the same, not the doulos that we're used to using here. But anyway, be subject to your masters, okay? Be subject to. It, 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 it really, it, it's a nominative participle that continues the idea of submission expressed in 1 Peter 2.13 uh, through the aorist imperative. And uh, to be subject to, to make it a continuing condition. Servants and slaves are made up. In those days, they were the majority of the population demographics. The high percentage of the early church undeserved punishment and suffering was common for the underlings. So they were, they were abused, not surprised. So if, you're, if you subject yourself to a good and gentle master, you know, what, no, of course, no problem. But here he's calling for them to be also subject to the ones that are abusive. The word froward. Those would be harsh. And uh, the Greek term means bent, not straight, curved. <laughs> In fact, that same Greek word is the word uh, scoliosis, which refers to the curvature of the spine. It comes from this word, to be bent. And we've all had masters that were bent. Huh? <laughs> okay. So, if this is thankworthy of man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Now, he, he, Peter sets forth a principle here that can be applied to any situation where unjust suffering occurs. If you have justified suffering, that's not the issue here. It's the unjust suffering, okay? Peter goes on and says, What glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. See, no credit accrues for enduring punishment for doing wrong. You got what you deserved, right? It is respectful submission to undeserved suffering that finds favor with God because such behavior demonstrates His grace. Are you with me so far? Let me turn this coin over the other way. Do you realize that of the hurts and resentments you have, the ones that are the most dangerous are the ones that are the most justified? If somebody is if you suffer an undeserved hurt, that's easier to get used to and dismiss because you can really admit to yourself that really wasn't, you know. But when you have a hurt that you feel is really justified, that's the kind of hurt that will bind you to that person. It's harder to break because it's a justified hurt. Do you follow me? Giving that over to God is tougher. Giving over the unjustified slander that's said about you, you can do that because you know it's unjustified. I'm speaking not to the outward, the inward aspect here. If you have a, a justified hurt because, boy, that, you know, shouldn't have happened and da-da-da-da, it's hard to let go. It's hard to leave that at the cross, isn't it? It's more essential that you do because as long as you have that hurt, it's a, it, it binds you. It binds you. But anyway... 
Let's go on here. For even hereunto ye are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Peter powerfully supports his exhortation to, to the slaves by citing Christ's example of his endurance to unjust suffering. He was rejected. He was pure, but he, he, was, he was crucified. He came to fulfill God's promises. Talk about, wow. For hereunto ye were, were ye called. So Christians are called, same words used to follow Christ, to emulate his character and conduct, because he suffered for us. Whatever you're suffering, it's less than he suffered for you. That's the net of it. Why? Because he served as an example. He left an example here. And the hippogramenum, it's an underwriting, if you will. The only place it appears in the New Testament. It, refer, it, it, it really refers to a draw, writing or drawing that a student reproduces, if you will. So, uh, in a sense, we are to be a carbon copy, if you will, of that. You should follow in his steps, is the idea. Who did no sin, neither was God found in his mouth. And again, he's quoting from the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 9. Jesus committed no sin, either before or during his suffering. He was sinless. He was completely innocent in both deed and word, without deceit. No deceit was found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You know, it's astonishing when you look at the crucifixion and realize who he was. At any moment, boy, could he have set their clock. The creator of the universe was hanging on that cross. And they were making fun of him, abusing him physically, but also every other way. And uh, he reviled not again. You realize who he was, that's what's staggering. But he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Christ was a perfect example of patient submission, of unjust suffering. That's the primary point that Peter's drawing upon here in the of the crucifixion. Humanly speaking, the provocation to retaliate during Christ's arrest, trial, and crucifixion was extreme. Yet he suffered in silence, committing himself to God. Why? Because he was in our shoes. He chose to be in our shoes. He left it to the Father to vindicate him in his good time. Is God going to set that record straight? You bet. You bet. And we need to also leave it to the Father. When, we, when someone is reviling us or slandering us or whatever, we are to leave it to the Father. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Don't take it on yourselves. Peter continues, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live into righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. This is a widely misunderstood line, by the way. We're going to get into this here. Peter explains why the one whom could have destroyed his enemies with a word patiently endured the pain and humiliation of the cross. He bare our sins. See, he was in our shoes. He, had to leave it to, he, he left it to God because he had to, because he was in our shoes. God was justly judging our sins, which his son bore. He was made sin for us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Strange word. Strange passage that the Holy One of God was made sin for us. You and I have no capacity to imagine what that really means. But he was. But he was. 
He didn't want to break the rope. Now, now, by who, uh, our sins. The Greek words, our sins, are near the beginning of the verse. Not in the English here, but in the Greek, it's the front of the thing, which is emphatic that way. In the Greek, that's, it's our sins. That's the, 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 the emphasis here. And uh, so, while he stresses Christ's personal involvement, it's our sins that's really the subject of that, that uh, clause. That we, being dead to sins... His death makes it possible for believers to be free from both the penalty and the power of sin and to live for Him. That's the penalty of sin, death. And he, he paid that by dying. So we might die to sins and live for righteousness. That's the inversion that we're looking for. Right? Romans 6 is your amplification of that whole issue. Christ suffered so that it would be possible for Christians to follow His example both in suffering and righteous living. So don't misunderstand these stripes. We'll get to that here in a minute. By, his stri by whose stripes ye are healed. Peter is here talking about a general reference to salvation. By his wounds you have been healed. Of what? Of sin. This doesn't really refer to medical healing as some people try to apply it. I'm not disparaging it. I'm not saying that God doesn't heal. But that's not what the gr grammar is dealing with here. This does not refer to the physical healing. It's the verb's past tense that indicates a completed action, the healing that's an accomplished fact which occurred on the cross. Follow me? Important, because that sometimes is misapplied. Okay, it goes beyond the grammar, in other words, by whose stripes we're healed. The references to salvation, Christ's stripes, a wound, a stripe left by a lash, referred to Jesus' scourging and death accomplished the healing, the salvation of every individual who trusts in Him as a Savior. That's the thrust and focus of Peter's thought here. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't heal. But that's not what this is focusing on. This is talking about salvation. And he's taking those stripes that give us our salvation. For we as sheep are going astray. There's again a quote from Isaiah 53. For we as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of our souls. That's quite a term, the shepherd and bishop. He not only, Christ not only served as an example and provides salvation, but he also continues to give guidance and protection to those who are headed away, like sheep going astray, in other words, rather than return. That, that, that uh, he, he gets them turned about. It's, it's like, like, uh, like he keeps us in the flock, if you will. It keeps us from straying too far. To the shepherd and overseer. The whole concept of shepherd and overseer here is one of continual accountability, continue, continued guidance, if you will. Yes, he did it once and for all on the cross, but he also continues as our shepherd and bishop of our souls. And that's his, his guidance and management of those who commit themselves to his care. Have you committed him? Have you committed yourself to his care? Then he's your shepherd, he's your bishop, he's the one you rely on. Okay. Now we finished the first section of a three section letter. We're, next time we're going to study 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, this chapter you're going to enter is going to be astonishingly parallel to the challenges you and I are going to be facing over the next few weeks and months. You and I are entering into an era of history of our country that is going to be markedly different than it's been for the last two centuries. Because uh, for a lot of reasons we'll talk about as we go. Um, 
One of the other passages that we're going to be dealing with in another study, but it's relevant in the same flavor, is our study of Hosea, from cha- you know, especially from chapter 4 on in Hosea. It deals with a set of series uh, conditions that I think are very distinctively the ones we're facing in the future. But chapter 3 of 1 Peter will remarkably be sensitive to this as you go through it and do your study for next time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have such a phenomenal example in Jesus Christ. We do pray, Father, that you would, through your Holy Spirit and through your word, help us to be more effective witnesses by our walk, by our obedience to the laws, by our, the way we comport ourselves among those uh, our, our contemporaries. We pray, Father, that our walk would be effective to testify of you that it would be in conformance to the third commandment, that you would not hold him guiltless that taketh your name in vain. We recognize, Father, that refers to ambassadorship. And as we take your name, Father, we pray that through your power, not through your Holy Spirit, that you would help us be effective in every detail, that our walk would be pleasing in your sight and an effective testimony to those that observe us. We thank you for Peter's letter. We pray, Father, that these words would take deep root in our hearts as we go forward, as we commit ourselves to be living stones upon which our King is building his church. Help us to be effective for your purposes in the days ahead as we commit ourselves without any reservation into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our coming King, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.